Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading a new book today, Stones of Fire by Isabel Kuhn, with permission of OMF International. Prelude. Stones of Fire. The first time I ever saw them was in a setting as unique as unexpected. It happened many years ago in the days of youthful agnosticism, and while I was traveling with the Players Club of our university, a yachting club had sponsored our play that night. And after the performance, they gave us a dance at their clubhouse on the waters of a lovely lake. A member of the club, appointed as a partner, and until then unknown to me, said, as the orchestra ceased playing, Come out to the veranda a moment. I want to show you something. Dancing up to the clubhouse door, which was open onto the balcony over the lake, he led me out to the unlit piazza. Electric light from the ballroom streamed through the doorway, while out on the lake the moon was making a softer brilliance on the rippling waters. Giving a quick glance at my puzzled face, this strange man thrust his hand to his pocket and pulled out something, and he held it in the light from the doorway for me to look at. Have you ever seen anything like this, he inquired. On his open palm lay about ten small, pale stones. But as I gazed, I became entranced, for each little stone was shooting fire. Ruby lights, emerald lights, golden lights, amethyst, they were indescribable. It was as if tiny little rainbows had been captured and put into the pale translucent prisons from which they were sending forth rays of fire. I was enthralled. Oh, how beautiful. What are they? I cried. Mexican opals, my partner replied casually. I like them, and so I carry them loose in my pocket. I like to put my hand down and feel them, and even if there is not time to take them out and look at them, I carry them with me wherever I go. That was all, but I never forgot those beautiful stones. Not long ago after that, Christ challenged me and I yielded. In the course of time, he took me to the end of the earth, and there, in a setting as unique and as unexpected as the first instance, I found the living counterpart of the little opals from the scene of my youth. The pocket this time was a canyon, thousands of feet deep in Mother Earth, tucked into the foothills of the Tibetan Plateau. The gems were simple, unpretentious tribesfolk, rock-like in their fidelities, but flashing fire if the depths of their love were touched. Stones of fire. As I watched them battle with the untoward circumstances, the analogy dawned on me, sweeping me back to a quarter of a century in time and over half of the world in space. But there it was. Perfect. Upon the holy mountain of God, you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Ezekiel 28:14. Let us look at them in the light of a comment from Dr. Campbell Morgan. What a strange bringing together of the contradictions. Stones of fire. A stone is the last embodiment of principle, hard and cold. Fire is the essence of passion, warm and energizing. Put the two together and we have stones principle. Fire passion. Principle shot through with passion. Passion held by principle. That is the description of a human stone of fire. At the end of the earth, where mountains were flung peak upon peak, as if they were discards of the Creator, piled together chaotically, the Salween River carves its way through the granite masses making canyon thousands of feet deep, as the side veinings of a leaf meet at the center vein. So hundreds of tributaries into the Salween have cut abysmal ravines into the western and eastern banks of the Green River, as the Chinese call it. 
And so this canyon with its tributary ravines have netted the mountain range into hundreds of slopes on which the green needle grass grows profusely. For unknown centuries, the Lacey tribespeople have plowed these perpendicular hillsides into the cornfields and reaped a bare, rough living. The Chinese contemptuously refer to them as earth people and have noticed them only to collect taxes, for which purpose a magistrate lives at Lusing Town. By the rest, the canyon is governed by the feudal system. The landowners are the real rulers of the people, and how they rule will be revealed as the story unfolds. To the east, there is a parallel canyon of the great Mekong River, through which the Lesu salt traders must go to get to the salt mines. For the rest, civilization as we know it, shops, telegraphs, medical clinics, and so on, is many days' journey away. Pashan City, supply base of the missionary, is about a week's travel from the scene of this narrative. The story of how the Lesu tribe was first evangelized is told in Mountain Rain, or how the upper Selwyn was open to the gospel in Nest Above the Abyss. Now I'll step aside and let you see God, the great lapidary, as he takes up a clod of earth and forms it into a jewel selects a little earth person and makes her into a stone of fire. Chapter 1. A Stone is Quarried A small figure was toiling up the orange mud of the long mountain road. In that canyon where human beings, so undernourished, matured slowly, she looked about ten or twelve years of age, whereas in reality she was fifteen. The day was warm and a big load of firewood in the basket on her back was heavy so she paused to rest on a rock that jetted out from the road bank. Pulling out the end of her dark blue turban, she wiped the perspiration from her face, and then she tucks it back in again. Her eye caught a glimpse of another figure coming up the road behind her. Tall, young, unburdened, he was swinging over the ground with a graceful lilt, which would soon overtake her. Born on the road, the girl murmured his name to herself. He must be home for the weekend from Bible school. Then she watched the gloss of his carefully groomed curly black hair. She thought within herself, I'll take another look when he has passed. A general favorite was born on the road, but as a young Bible student swung up to the little wood carrier, he stopped to talk. Third sister, have you never thought of believing in Jesus? Confused and embarrassed at direct conversation from this young Adonis, the girl blushed, dropped her eyes and said shyly, Father would not let me. But that's not a matter in which you should listen to your father. As we Lesu say, the one who eats is the one who gets full. You have a soul, and God's son, Jesus, died to save your soul from hell. If you believe and accept him as your savior, God gives you eternal life, and your father cannot take it away from you or keep it from you. God forces his gift on no one. You must decide, you and you only. If you decide to accept, God will take care of your father. You think that over and make your own decision. Seeing that she was too scared and timid to even look at him, he strolled on ahead, his book bag slung over his shoulder, swaying colorfully with the sway of his lithe form. But it was the first touch of the pickaxe on this little stone which was to remove it from the mountain of hedonism into its new home. How little either of them thought that day of what the future would bring into their two lives. All the way up that long winding trail to the village of Olives, third sister was debating as she carried her heavy load. She would like to please her exhorter, for there was one person in the world that she admired. It was born on the road. All the villagers knew that he was clean and true, knew, too, the testings which had taken place since his conversion six years before. 
At the time of that event, she herself had been but eight years of age. However, she still remembered the stir among the adults of the village when that first Lesu evangelist, Isaiah, had come to Olives and said it was wrong to worship demons. Born on the Road's family was the first to cast off their demon altar. Born on the Road was not his real name. It was the village nickname in memory of his entrance into the world. As third sister came trotting around the curve, she could see the high rock where his birth had taken place. Although his mother had endeavored to reach home from her work in that rice field that evening, the baby had come on the trail beneath that great cliff. His parents had called him Yufa Wing, but the village folk refused to call him by that. Lu Xing, the Chinese for born on the road, he was, and Lu Xing Pa was his father, and Lu Xing Ma was his mother, and must be until they died. Yes, how good it would be to become a Christian, mused third sister as she patted along at the wood carrier's jock trot. She now had a full view of their village with a small white chapel built in the middle of Lucing's farm. But father would never let me go there. Oh no. Why, second sister is a secret Christian, and look what a time she's had of it. But then, if I become one too, we could stand together perhaps. But even so... What were the women in this land where every female is but a chattel in some man's hand all her days? Thus debating the matter, the little 15-year-old arrived at her home. Many months passed. Third sister was busy learning to spin cotton into thread and then weave it into cloth on the primitive footloom. This was a woman's winter work besides the inevitable gathering firewood, pounding corn, and the daily water carrying. Lu Sing had gone with Ma Pa and Ma Ma, the foreign missionaries, up to the village of the three clans where the Lord had begun a mighty work. Olives is on the main road south of Chinaland, so Lesu travelers coming from the north often brought letters from Lucing to the church at Olives. Second sister went secretly to church and on returning home would wait until they were alone and recount to the third sister all she had heard. One day, March the 23rd, 1940, word spread in the village that Lucing, Ma Pa, and Ma Ma had returned. And if you wanted to hear Ma Pa preach, you should come on Sunday noon. That Sunday was beautiful, quiet, sunny day, the peach blossoms shining pink against the new green of the mountainside. And as little third sister sat in her weaving, the music of happy hymns came floating down the slope to her. There was a new song, When I See the Blood, I Will Pass Over You. Whatever did those words mean? But oh, the lilting tune seemed to call to her. Years later, in giving her testimony, she told of it. One Sunday, I heard the lovely singing in the chapel, started up the hill, but had not the courage and turned back. That night, however, I slipped in, and I remembered that Ticketus and I both took a stand for Christ then. Incidentally, Mama's diary of that evening adds an interesting sidelight. It says, Lucing spoke so well tonight and on short notice. It was Lucing again, in God's hand, he was the pickaxe that was loosening little Lesu opal from his clinging earth. Third sister was not yet born from above. Her testimony continues. I went on being a Christian, but very carelessly. Heathen Lesu, when annoyed, are foul of speech, and every child learns those words as they grow up in the heathen atmosphere. It was with her tongue that that third sister was careless. But how she had an ideal shining in her heart. The noble face of Lu Sing, with the light of heaven playing on it when he preached, was an influence which unconsciously began to guard the girl from the mire into which others of her age commonly fell. All through the spring and summer months, while working in the fields with the young companions, 
third sister was kept. When a young man would playfully catch her by the arm, something within rose up and resented it. All unconsciously, this little stone of fire was beginning to learn, passion held by principle. The end of August brought exciting news. Teacher Thomas, his wife, Homa, and their baby son, John, were coming to Olives to be the Lesu pastor and family. What rejoicing among the believers. For seven years there had been Christians in this village, but never had they had a pastor of their own. Thomas was to live in Lusing's guest house, but it was so rickety that it must be reinforced, and the clay earth stamped down hard for a smooth floor. What day could everyone help? The little family was due to arrive on September the 2nd, so the place must be in order by then. Much water must be needed to pour on the floor before the earth could be stamped level and hardened well. The girls could carry the water. Homei had cooked for the American missionary, so she was almost like a Chinese in her clean living habits. She was like an earthen stone instead of the lace iron tripod straddling a fire on the floor. Well, a clever-fingered Lusing Pa could make that if some of the young people could dig clay and the others carry it to him. So a day was set, and merrily the young group met, apportioned off groups and worked together. Teasing, laughter, and witty repartee spiced the work. Jonathan and Ticketus were such wags, and Lucing Pa was the worst tease of all. So by the set time, the small house was ready, clean and neat, with the hard earth floor almost like cement, all done by free, loving labor. Two or three days earlier, some volunteers must go off to the oak flat to help carry Homey's luggage. Incidentally, they could see and hear the closing day exercises of the rainy season Bible school. Lucing was one of the class speakers that year. How third sister would love to have gone, but the idea of a day's journey away from home was rather terrifying. No, she would stay and help get the welcome arch ready. She knew where some wild orchids grew in an old dead tree, and they would look so pretty among the greenery of the arch. All day her heart beat high with expectation. Being the Christian brought so much new interest into life, and the heathen said it was a dull existence without drinking whiskey or smoking or singing the two to say it, but they did not know. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. Third sister had seen the trouble after a night of carousing, knife wounds and brutal bruises, but the sweet blessing of preparing a home for your own pastor and meeting every evening such as the one they expect to have tonight. Lucing would be back, and he would be sure to have new songs learned at the Bible school, which had just closed. The Western reader, accustomed to all the fanfare of the modern excitements, cannot be expected to understand the delight and thrill of the simple children of the hills, where the newly translated song or anthem is given to them. To them it was excitement, something new to break the monotony of the tedious daily round, as well as a new channel into which to praise God. They had no books, no shop windows in which to gaze or see a new thing, no news flashes of which the rest of the world is doing, no car or bicycle to take them to change of scenery. Life is very drab and laborious, but a new song stimulates new effort, for everybody learns each of the four parts by memory and lends occasion for a comment on the unmelodious altos and the straining tenors which usually ends in laughter. All over the world, get a group of young people together with something to do, and you have the spice of life. A new song is something to do. About half past four that afternoon, the deep, mellow voice of a gong began to boom out over the hillside. It proclaimed that travelers now sighted on the trail that circled such a long time before it enters the village would soon be at the welcome arch, where everyone must now go. 
Down the mountainside and across the village trails, they came running. And by the time Thomas's party had reached the arch, all the Christians were assembled on the other side of it. Menorah pitched the note. The four-part singers fell into harmony and all began to sing. There's a teacher at the door. Let him in. He will teach us God's road. Let him in. That we might have salvation, that we might get to heaven. God has given him to us. Let him in. When the song was finished, the guests passed under the arch and shook hands with the singers. Then all turned together to escort the little family up to the hill to their new home. Chapel was full that night. How everyone enjoyed it. That new tune to Guide Us, O Thou Great Jehovah was so winsome. It tied itself to your heartstrings and pulled a little. Caring and doubting, gloom and sorrow, fear and shame are mine no more. Faith knows not of dark tomorrow. For my Savior goes before. And the Lesu version repeats it softly. For my Savior goes before. Village of Olives having sent four boys to study at the rainy season Bible school this year. Each must give a testimony. Thomas, Enoch, Jonah, and Lucing. One of them mentioned that a world war had begun. And that Mama had said that all should pray about it every week in the Saturday night prayer meetings. A country called France had fallen, and another country called Japan was fighting China. What queer names, thought little third sister. How could one remember such names, let alone pronounce them? War? In the canyon there had been shooting with crossbows and poisoned arrows mainly, but really third sister could not picture it very clearly. Perhaps the French place did not have the poison for their arrow tips, and that's why they were beaten so quickly. Well, it's too bad, but what a good time we had tonight. And now study began in earnest. As Homei was ill and getting worse, Teacher Thomas could not visit the neighboring villages as he had went first planned. But that meant that he would be free to teach in Olives every night. He had decided to begin teaching the four parts of All Hell, Emmanuel. Third sister found it hard to watch the words, the notes of her particular part, and the time beat all at the same time. But when, after many efforts, the four parts were sung together, the harmony delighted everyone. And then the boys were so jolly. Sosthenes was a bit too daring. Third sister was glad she was little so that she got behind behind the others. Sarah, Lydia, and Rhoda were the popular ones and the ones most teased. But they always knew what to answer back, whereas neither third sister or second sister was quick at answering back. But they were both working hard at the catechism now, for Thomas was planning a baptismal service, and knowledge of the catechism was considered essential in those days. Now listen to her own account given in her testimony some years later and written down as she spoke. My mother had died, and during this time my father was opposed to my being a Christian. My older sister wanted to be catechized also, so we studied secretly, not letting father know until we both passed and was accepted for baptism. But after that event, something happened to me inside, a transformation. Before that, I was careless and often wrong in my speech. But after my baptism, I knew I was different. I dearly loved the words in Hebrews 11.1. I approved that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is a substance. It produces things tangible and real. And the decision is another very powerful thing. I have been impressed anew with that this year. The listeners did not know all that her heart meant by that last sentence until years later. Now let us see how this child of primitive remote mountain canyon discovered that faith is a substance. And I think we're going to end there because chapter 2 is Stones in His Pocket. 
I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.